Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Okay, we got somebody very interesting for you uh, this week. His name is Saad Guru. He comes from uh, a tradition that uh, that I have not spent much time exploring. I really have, have spent more time in the sort of either Buddhism or secular mindfulness world. This guy is a full-on guru uh, uh, from India, but not your typical uh, guru. Uh, He rides a motorcycle, plays sports, but also has a a large, vibrant following and a best-selling book on his hands uh, called Inner Engineering, which was edited by the woman who's going to be editing my next three books. So she uh, introduced me to Sadhguru. Extremely interesting dude. And uh, I think I think you'll I think you'll get a kick out of him and, and learn something too. So I give you Sadhguru. From ABC, this is the Ten Percent Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. In reading your book, you tell a story that I want to get you to retell, just so that people have a sense of who you are. At at a pretty early age, if I recall correctly, I think in your early 20s, you made a trip up a hill in your hometown in India and had an experience that you say changed your entire life. Can you describe that? So me as a person never was in any way connected with anything spiritual or religious for that matter. So I, right from my very early childhood, I grew up, grew up as a, a skeptic. And as I progressed into youth, I became a super skeptic. <laughs> as I crossed my teens into twenties, I became a super, super skeptic. I did not grow up on anything spiritual or religious for that matter. And also uh, being fed by European philosophers like Camus, Kafka, and Dostoevsky, and this kind of stuff. My skepticism got reinforced by (laughs) all these things. But uh, I've been practicing yoga since I was 12 years of age. But not in a spiritual way. No. I went into yoga for all the wrong reasons. I saw a man who was over 80 years of age, who was almost physically like a superman when I met him at the age of 11, which so impressed me that (laughs) I went and asked him how to be like this. He said, come and do yoga. And he taught me something very simple and I just kept up that stuff. It definitely set me apart uh, both physically and mentally in any group of people. But uh, spiritual thing was not even on my mind. I was not looking for anything like that. So this afternoon, I... You know, in Mysore, the small town in southern India, there is a tradition that uh, if we want to test our motorcycles, we went up Chamundi Hill. If we fell in love, we went up Chamundi Hill. If we fell out, we had to go out of, go up Chamundi Hill. <laughs> if we had nothing to do, we went to Chamundi Hill. Between two business meetings, by then... I had crisscrossed India on my motorcycle. Only the national borders had stopped me because I didn't have the necessary documentation to cross. So I made up my mind I'll make enough money and get the needed stuff and I'll ride away because nothing around me made sense to me, kind of. None of the things that people were pursuing around me 
didn't mean anything to me, so I just want to ride away and see. In the process, I started one business and it became very successful. I started another one, half a dozen things were going, all successful. When everything that you're doing is successful and everybody's clapping their hands for you, slowly the planet started going around me instead of the sun. <laughs> so I, apart from being super skeptic, I became a bit cocky. So one afternoon between two business meetings, when there was nothing to do, I just naturally rode up. I didn't even think about it. I just rode up Chamundi Hill. I know this hill well. I parked up and went up there and sat. Till that moment, my experience was this, that is this physical me, is me, and that somebody is somebody else. I had no issues with anybody. I'm very happy. I'm successful. Everything is going great. But that is somebody else and that's not my business. But suddenly I did not know which is me and which is not me. What was me was just all over the place. The very rock upon which I was sitting, the air that I was breathing, the atmosphere around me, what was me had exploded into everything. I thought this madness lasted for 10-15 minutes. But when I came back to my normal senses, about four and a half hours had passed. I… time had just flipped in my experience. For the first time in my adult life, tears, me and tears were impossible. And here I am sitting this entire four and a half hours, tears have been flowing, my shirt is all wet. I was dripping ecstasy. Every cell in my body was just bursting, exploding with ecstasy. So after some time when I shake my head and <laughs> ask my skeptical mind what's happening to me, the only thing that my mind would say is, maybe you're going off the rocker. When I asked my closest friends, the only questions that came to me is, did you drink something, did you pop something, this kind of stuff. There was no context for what was happening within me. All I knew was, I've hit a gold mine, this much I knew. In a f staying there for a few days like this, in an absolutely ecstatic state, to such a point, what I thought two minutes would be like seven, eight hours gone. Sometimes days passed away without me knowing. I'm just sitting there and days would just pass away, I wouldn't know. So when I realized that, this is something that is possible for every human being. People must have thought you lost, lost your mind. <laughs> well, my family had uh, little problems coming to terms with it. But at the same time, my mother saw something significant was happening to me. She, you know, in India, for me it was fresh. I had never heard about it, nor I knew about it because I grew up in a completely different uh, atmosphere. But in India, generally people are conscious of this, that yogis sit somewhere and they don't get up for days and sometimes months on end. This is something that is there in the common culture. But I grew up in such an exclusive, you know, very westernized <laughs> kind of setup and there was no any kind of spiritual or religious atmosphere in our homes. So I was completely ignorant or innocent of it, but uh, it was generally there. People started gathering, thinking something is happening, they wanted miracles to happen <laughs> and that kind of stuff. But as far as I was concerned, I thought, if I just sit here and if I don't mess with my mind, I just drip ecstasy. I thought this is all. I made a plan, the fool that I was at that time, that in maybe in three years' time, I'm going to make the entire world ecstatic. It's 34 years now. Hmm. 
<laughs> we have touched a little more than 100 million people, but that's not the world. 7.3 billion people. Slowly I realized that uh, people have invested in their misery. They're not going to give up their investment unless you create sufficient incentive, sufficient understanding into them. They're not going to walk back and be able to create this within themselves. Every human being is capable of this. When it comes to external situations, all of us may be differently capable. But when it comes to inner situations, all of us are equally capable because all of us are endowed with the same stuff. But unfortunately, most people don't do it. But today I can say there are millions of people around the world, if they as much as close their eyes, tears of ecstasy will dribble down. I can show you any number of people today like this. So I want to talk about other people soon, but let me stick with you. I'm using the term in quotes um, because I think you... It, if I understand your story, well, you, your sense of you exploded in a sense, uh, your inner sense of there being an I. But can you just tell me a little bit more about what you think in 34 years later, what was happening on that hill? What happened to you? Was that an experience of enlightenment? So the word yoga means just this. Yoga means union. I know in New York City it means something else. <laughs> it means Lululemon pants. <laughs> yeah. Yoga means union. Union means, see, as you sit here, you're breathing. You're breathing, what it means is on one level, what you exhale, the trees are inhaling. What the trees exhale, you're inhaling. Or in other words, one half of your lungs are hanging out there on the tree. That's what it means. This is not knowing intellectually. Suppose you experience, as you breathe, you experience the connection between you and the tree then we say you're in yoga. This is not just about the tree. Every particle in your body is in constant communication with the entire cosmos. If this comes into your experience, today modern physics is saying this, but if this comes into your living experience, then we say you're in yoga or you're a yogi. If you bend and twist and turn, that's not called yoga, that's called asana. Asana. Yes, that means a posture. A posture, right. So, uh, I got it. Um, so, you think you had an experience, or you're saying you had an experience of union. Yoga. Yoga. <laughs> union, yes. Oneness with the universe, would that be another way to say it? Yes, it is. And? Um, it is that experience which has propelled all these things, because I'm completely uneducated in terms of spirituality. I've never read a scripture in my life, I've never been to a teacher, but this is just an outpouring of my experience. Your whole career subsequent to that is an outpouring of your experience. I, I don't have a career, I just, I mean, <laughs> just fooling around with the world, just trying to rub off what happened to me on everybody else. Okay, so, okay, what what could I, I mean, it sounds great, the idea that I could close my eyes and tears of ecstasy would drip out. How, I'm, I have this rare opportunity, I'm sitting across from you, what do I do to get that? So it's just this. There is accumulated stuff. One is your body. This is an accumulation of food that you've eaten. Another is your mind. So I'm a walking cheeseburger right now? <laughs> It depends what you consume. Uh -huh. <laughs> this is a heap of food. What you call as my mind is a heap of impressions that have happened. Between these two heaps, there is no experience of yourself. 
most people experience their thought, emotion, ideas, opinions and prejudices as themselves. These are all accumulated stuff. What you accumulate can be yours, can never ever be you. Just because you may be sitting in front of this microphone for many hours a day and after some time if you start thinking that I am the microphone, then your company will say he needs treatment, isn't it? <laughs> yes. The same goes for your throat, the same goes for your face, the same goes for your head and the same goes for your entire body. It is something that you slowly accumulated and started using. You're using it so constantly, you think you are that. If you can sit here, which we can give you simple tools with which you can do, if you can sit here where your body is here, your mind is out there and what is you is little away. Now suddenly this is the end of suffering. There can be no suffering in this state because the only two varieties of suffering that you know in your life is physical or mental. If you create a little space between you and the body, a little space between you and what you consider as your mind, this is the end of suffering. Only when there is no room for suffering, that there is no fear of suffering, you will walk your life full stride. Otherwise, the fear of suffering has crippled humanity in a huge way. So, walking or traversing the peaks of human consciousness happens because you lost the fear of suffering. So, all of that sounds incredibly interesting, very intriguing. Can you talk to me a little bit about the simple tools that you mentioned that would allow me to experience what you're describing? The simplest tool would be if you can constantly remind yourself that what you, your body is a piece of the planet that you slowly gathered. Your mind is just the exposure that you've had. If you are in a constant state of reminder that I am not this body, I am not this mind, if this becomes a living reality, you will explore into an ecstatic state. But it's not going to happen right away, because I, I see the truth of what you're saying, but I'm not in an ecstatic state. I'm in an engaged and interested state, but not ecstatic. Uh, it doesn't take time. I created a device, which is called a Shambhavi, which takes about 28 to 30 hours of committed time to deliver. That is what is worldwide going on in engineering, where a focused time of 28 to 30, year, uh, 30 hours we teach people how to turn inward, beyond body, beyond mind. This is what has created over 100 million people around the world who have a deep experience and they keep up this pro process because in the morning when they sit, everything is settled for them. So, what is this device you talked about? It's called as Inner Engineering. Inner Engineering, yes. that's, which is the name of your new book, uh, edited by Julie Grau, who's ed editing my next three books, so she's going to be in my life for a while. Um, you... So the device is called... Don't, don't let her cut up everything. <laughs> We're looking at her because she's in the next room right now. Um, <laughs> I won't let her cut up everything, although I don't know if I have a choice. Um, <laughs> se separate topic. So s uh, the device you mentioned, inner engineering, is a, is a physical device or is it a teaching tool? It's a subjective tool. Gotcha. And, and it takes 28 to 38 hours of what? See, one thing is to bring a certain understanding because there's too much misunderstanding about what you, what is you and what is not you. The moment you assume something that is not you as yourself, obviously everything has gone off. You won't know how to handle it. Or to put it simply, 
of all the gadgets that you find, I, you see a lot of this room is full of gadgets, of all this, the most sophisticated gadget is this human mechanism. But I'm asking you, have you read the user's manual? <laughs> so this is like a user's manual for this gadget, understanding how to use it. Because the only and only reason, people may give many exotic names to these things, all kinds of suffering from stress to anxiety to depression to madness and to every kind of stuff. But the only thing that's happened is your own intelligence is turned against you. There is nothing else. So, in other words, you know, the evolutionary process, I'll make it very simplistic. Charles Darwin went about describing maybe a deer could have become a giraffe. Maybe a pig could have become an elephant in so many millions of years. But a monkey became a human being rather quickly. <laughs> and to such a point, so quickly, that anthropologists believe there could be a missing link somewhere. In terms of DNA, they say, I'm not a scientist, but some people are saying that the DNA difference between a human being and a chimpanzee is only 1.23%. So physiologically, that's how close we are to a chimpanzee. But in terms of our intelligence and awareness, we are worlds apart from a chimpanzee. Or in other words, you have an intelligence for which you don't have a stable enough base. So inner engineering is about creating that stable base within you where your intelligence will work for you, not never against you. You may call it stress, you may call it anxiety, you may call it whatever, but essentially your intelligence is working against you. If it worked for you, you will generate joy. And the tools in this inner engineering program yes. that you described, this yes. is, it helps you stabilize your attention, stabilize your... <clears throat> stabilize the platform which houses this intelligence. Mm. So your body too. Yes, of course. See, there is no, in the yogic way of looking at things, there is no separate body and mind. Because there is more memory and more intelligence in every cell in your body than your entire brain put together, actually. For example, how your great-great-great-grandfather ten generations ago was, obviously you don't remember, but his nose is sitting on your face. <laughs> How your forefathers were a million years ago, your body still remembers. Of course, your mind cannot remember, isn't it? So in terms of memory and intelligence, the number of chemical reactions the body is conducting per second is just astronomical. All this is happening because there is a deeper dimension of intelligence. Because we're misunderstanding just intellect as intelligence, human beings are suffering enormously. If other dimensions of intelligence which are functioning you, func functioning within you become accessible to you, suddenly life is just a play, you can just handle it effortlessly. As I told you, my schedules run like this, people ask, where is the rest? You, only if you're suffering something, you want a break. Oh, I should explain because that was before the, we started rolling, but I was asking you about your crazy schedule. You're on this 28-city tour or something like that of the U.S., and then you're on your way back to speak to executives at uh, General Electric in India, and you have this crazy schedule, and I asked you if you were stressed, and you said it's not a problem. And so that's 
you, you, an outgrowth gro- of your understanding. It's not a crazy, crazy schedule. It's a very effective way of using my time. <laughs> I'm putting 20 hours of activity per day, seven days of the week. I am not one of those, thank God it's Friday, because I'm creating something that I love to do. So where is the question of uh, becoming stressed? Maybe sometimes physical exhaustion is there, that can be dealt with. Have you raised any children? Yes. And and, and having a toddler around the house, as I do, <laughs> never made you stressed? No, because I never treated uh, my girl as a toddler, I treated her as an adult. So I would even do this to her. You know, as a rule, I made it clear to everybody around me, nobody should teach her anything. Nobody taught her anything. By the time she was 18 months old, she was speaking three languages very fluently, just picking it up from people. I told them nobody even teaches her A, B, C, or one, two, three, nothing. So when she was 13, (laughs) she grew up very joyfully without being messed by me. When she was 13, she was disturbed about something in the school and she came back and uh, she said, you're teaching everybody so many things, you're not telling me anything. Then I said, see, I don't do anything unsolicited, you come now, all right. So this is all you need to know. You never look up to anything, never look down on anything, that's all it takes. The moment you look up to something, you will naturally look down on something else. This is a prejudiced mind, this will mess you up over a period of time. You don't look up to anything, you don't look down on anything. This means you see everything just the way it is. You will navigate your life effortlessly. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I gotta tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. But let me just get back to this issue of stress, because I was watching. I have an eighteen-month-old, maybe he's twenty-month-old, whatever. I was I was watching him the other day, completely naked, because we couldn't get his diaper on, because he was in the middle of a temper tantrum, standing in front of the door that he wanted us to open for reasons that I still cannot understand, howling for a good you know fifteen to twenty minutes, and 
I went from annoyance <laughs> to then laughing at him and then to like f- real stress over the fact that does he have an emotional distur- disability of some sort? And I, I, you know, I'm pretty serious about meditation. I would not call myself an adept, but I, I do take it seriously. And I was stressed. So I don't understand how anybody, no matter how much meditation or whatever, cannot be stressed in a moment like that. A 20-month-old child must yes. be naked. He has no business to wear clothes. Unfortunately, we are messing him up. Yeah, but you, you don't put a diaper on a kid? You want to just pissing all over the place? You can't have that. You don't do that. Yes, he would. I, he definitely does. He, I, watched, I walked into the nursery the other day, and he was standing next to his <laughs> nanny, peeing on her leg with the look of unbelievable beatific happiness on his face. <laughs> He's a, I don't know, your child might have been a m- no, better behaved no. child than my barbarian. Uh, it is not, no child is special or not special. It is just that there is a certain stage of life when certain things will be done. We don't want that to be done. We want them to grow up tomorrow morning. That's a wrong way. If you have a little plant, you nurture it. You don't treat it like a tree, do you? If you have a little puppy, you treat it like a puppy, not like a big dog. Why not a child? The same thing goes. <laughs> I'm not trying to get him to grow up. I'm, what I'm saying is, it seems to me you're very you're you're in your book and in some of your statements here. You you are um, you talk about the disutility of stress. That there's there's not it's not useful to be stressed. It doesn't get you anything. Um, but I I feel like there's an inevitability to stress just as a reaction to life, and it can be... This is the choice you have. People think stress is a part of their life. It is not. It is just that they don't know a thing about their own thought and their own emotion. It amazes me how people live for so many years and they still don't figure how to handle their thought and emotion. If you knew how to handle your mind and body, you wouldn't cause stress to yourself. Stress makes you inefficient. It doesn't make you efficient. There is substantial medical evidence to show you that your body and brain functions at its best only when you're in a pleasant state of experience. Now, the situations that we face in our lives, they will never happen 100% the way we want them, never ever. But our inner situation at least must happen the way we want it. The world will not happen your way and I'm glad it is so because if everything happened your way, where do I go, where does everybody else go? (laughs) The outside world will never ever happen 100% your way. Even if you're just two or now you're three people in the family, it'll never happen 100% your way. If it's happening 51% your way, you have the controlling stake, you must enjoy it. But what happens within you must be your way, isn't it? Stress means even you're not happening the way you want. Forget about the world. If you don't happen the way you want, you're an accidental being, isn't it? When you exist as an accident, anxiety is natural. You're talking about how to react to life. Why are we thinking of reacting to life? Right now, for most people, life has become a compulsive reaction. The significance of being human is, we are not any different from any other creature. We do the same things, we eat, we sleep, we reproduce and we die one day. Only thing is we can conduct all of this consciously when the other creatures do these same things instinctively or in a reactive way. 
the fundamental thing about being human is you can handle every aspect of your life consciously. If you handle your thought and emotion consciously, would you be stressful or blissful? So, I know you want a short answer, but I'm not going to give you one. The the I think I fully am on board with the wisdom of responding thoughtfully instead of reacting blindly. I talk about I it all the time. I didn't say thoughtfully, consciously. Consciously. <laughs> I apologize for using the wrong word, but I'm on board with it anyway. And I think that... No, me- why I'm correcting this is, mm-hmm. this has happened to the world today, particularly to the Western world, where you think your thought is supreme. But... What I'm telling you is, your thought is coming out of a limited data that you have gathered. Every new situation that comes, about which you have no information, you will be stressed. This is the nature of the thought. So you are employing only that dimension of your intelligence. The other dimensions of intelligence have not even been touched. It's like you try to drive your car on one wheel. What are the other dimensions? Now, if you try to drive your car on one wheel, it's going to be very stressful for you and everybody else on the street. (laughs) I get that. But what are the other three wheels? See, we look at it this way. There is intellect and there is identity and there is a silo of memory, which has eight different dimensions of memory, starting from atomic memory, elemental memory, evolutionary memory, sensory memory, Uh, articulate memory, inarticulate memory, karmic memory, like this eight different dimensions of memory are there. This memory is super vast. This body knows the very nature of this planet, otherwise it cannot exist, otherwise it can't make itself from a piece of, you know, you take a piece of something and make this body out of there. It's just the soil in one way or the other. People will only understand this when they go to the grave. But actually, it is just a little bit of soil we picked up in the form of food and we made this body. It's the same stuff. This has happened this way because there's an incredible amount of memory in this which makes all this happen. And there is another dimension of intelligence which is unsullied by memory. There is no iota of memory in this. We must understand this. Memory is a great thing when it comes to survival. But memory is also a boundary. It is only through your memory. Right now, I remember Dan, my friend. This is my boundary. I remember another guy there. Oh, he's not my friend because he's not in my memory. So this is my nation. This is my race. This is my religion. This is my community. How did this come? It's just your memory. So memory is a great possibility when it comes to survival. But once you come as a human being, survival is never good enough. When it's in question, it's a big deal. But once it's taken care of, it doesn't mean anything to you. Because human being wants to expand limitlessly. Memory means a boundary. So there is a dimension of intelligence within you which is beyond all memory. The moment you touch this, being blissful, being ecstatic is a natural process. Okay, so I'll go back to one of the questions I was asking earlier. How do you touch this? What is the, what is the thing you can do that would get you there? The first thing is to turn inward. When I say turn inward, we are not talking about dissection or contemplation or anything like this because body and mind are seen as external to you because this is something that you gathered. What you gather is an external phenomenon, isn't it? So when we talk about turning inward, the problem right now is this. Everything that you are perceiving right now in the world 
you know that you are here you know there's a world around you only because you can see hear smell taste and touch the five senses these five senses in the very nature of things they're outward bound you can see what's around you but you can't roll your eyeballs inward and scan yourself you can just hear this but so much activity in this body you cannot hear even if a little ant crawls upon your hand you can feel it but so much blood flowing you cannot feel it because sense organs are outward bound these are instruments of survival with this you're trying to live your entire life when human consciousness and human being is not focused on survival once it's taken care of he wants to expand how much expansion if you look at it it doesn't matter where you are you still want to expand isn't it suppose you get to broadcast your show to the entire world all the 7 billion people heard it but then you would like to reach people if there are people in mars you would like to get to them isn't it of course it? yes pluto <laughs> you, even to the other galaxies you would yes. like to because this is the nature of being human because you want to expand limitlessly we're insatiable this limitless expansion is possible only when you touch a dimension of intelligence which is beyond memory because memory is a boundary with the boundary you're trying to go limitless all you're doing is either conquest or ambition or simply shopping or whatever only trying to you're trying to get to the infinite in installments it's a very constipated approach <laughs> <laughs> so what's the better approach the better approach is to turn inward beyond body beyond mind because anything that is beyond survival will not come naturally one has to strive that's why i said 28 to 30 hours of focused time and where do we do this is this how do we access these teachings this go is, to your ashram this is offered all over the world in many many cities in in america or 50 cities we are offering this program apart from that it's available online as a preparatory step on one full day in uh, real time so the book is also the effort in this direction so that one more small step one part of the program you take by yourself even that part will work by itself it's a complete thing by itself the book but once you know once you have an understanding that this is what my problem is then you can take other steps but this is a step by itself understanding itself will relieve you quite a bit but after the 28 to 30 hours is that enough to close my eyes and and cry ecstasy yes, yes? just 21 minutes a day you close your eyes and sit you see tremendous things will happen but when do i get to the point where i'm crying out of ecstasy right there in the 28 hours really yes <laughs> so what is let me you, you talk about this early in the book the guru thing as you know in the west we have we have i think some people have an innate aversion to gurus i don't know if that's because of bad publicity or because of <laughs> distrust of charismatic religious leaders but you're definitely embracing the guru thing not only on the pages of this book but also just in you know the way you look you've got the the beard and the no, whole the thing be- the beard is not does not grow on gurus it grows on all men i know why the rest have removed they must think about it what's that <laughs> why the rest of the men have removed they must think about it yes you're doing something about your face every day i'm doing nothing about it but i'm being blamed for something <laughs> <laughs> i'm not blaming you i'm just saying you're you're fully comfortable with the guru title and and i guess i'm uh, i wonder you the, put up a robust defense of it in the book so I've, i'm i'm wondering whether you can share some the, of that here the word guru means gu means darkness 
Ru means dispeller, one who dispels your darkness. In, among the gurus, there are various types. So now I am being referred to as a Sadguru, this is not a title, this is a description. Suppose uh, you, uh, you want to go to your doctor, obviously you don't go to your pediatrician or a geriatric or somebody. You go to an appropriate doctor, how do you know? He, there's a description that this is a cardiologist, this is this, this is that, whatever. Similarly, when you say Sadhguru, it's a description. You don't go to a Sadhguru because you want to know some scripture. You don't go to a Sadhguru because you want to know some other ritual or religion. You go to him because he does not know, he's uneducated. There's only one thing he knows. I know this piece of life from its origin to its ultimate. I am not a scholar, I am not educated. So Sadhguru is not a title, it's a description. But in today's world, in the Western world especially, people may not realize this, they think this is some other kind of guru. <laughs> so guru is not a... I know it is a four-letter word, but... <laughs> not that kind of four-letter <laughs> word. Not that kind. <laughs> and do you expect, you know, because I think a lot of us when we hear the word guru, we think of adulation, worship, bowing down, kissing of feet. Is that the way people treat you? Because I got the sense when I met you, you like just shook my hand and you seem pretty casual, but is that what is expected from you in a, uh, for you in a religious context? If they kiss my feet, I won't be able to walk. It's, it's not a good thing <laughs> Nothing is expected from my end. People are made different ways. Above all, cultures have taught them certain things. It's a cultural thing more than anything. For example, in India, it's not just for a guru. Any elder means people will bend down and touch their feet. If you want to walk out of your home, if your father is sitting there, you go touch his feet and go. This is a very common thing everywhere. Now, of course, they're bending half and touching his knee. They're not going that far because most people can't bend. <laughs> so this is not nothing to do with the guru. This is a cultural thing. This part of the world, people think that this is only for a guru. No, your mother, father, grandfather, whoever is there, this is done any elder in the house means you always... It's a way of showing your respect to them. So, do you understand why, or well, let me rephrase that. Do, why do you think there is, on, on our side of the planet, some reflexive mistrust about gurus? And what, what can you do to dispel that? <laughs> I think uh, many cultures have adopted this kind of attitude. Anything that you do not know must be wrong. If one thing is, if you think what you do not know cannot exist, that is a crown of ignorance. Today, in America at least, they're using the word guru freely. They're saying a golf guru, they're saying a basketball guru, they're saying a business guru, all kinds of things. They're using the word all over the place. It is just that they're using it little loosely, but I, I think there's nothing wrong about it. Maybe in the arena of business, if somebody takes away your darkness, Maybe he's your business guru. Mm -hmm. If you don't know how to hit a ball and somebody taught you how to hit a ball straight, <laughs> maybe he's your golf guru. I don't see anything wrong with that. And you you um, are not what we would think of, despite the fact that you have some superficial things that would... What is, what is it? No, no, let's come to this. You want me to invest on blades and razors. No, 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 I like the beard. <laughs> don't get me wrong. I'm just saying it looks like a guru thing. No, but I'm You saying, wear it well. 
No, no. I could not get away with it. (laughs) I'm saying a beard does not grow on a guru alone. It grows on all men. But gurus are more likely to wear the beard that way. Why is it that Unless you're from Brooklyn. (laughs) Why is it that others have removed? This is something that they must think about. Do you think I should grow a beard? No, I'm not saying you should or should not. But I'm saying you should know why you're removing it. Well, that's a fair question. (laughs) That's a fair question. See, <clears throat> if I don't have a mirror in my home, okay, after ten years, if you see me, I'll still look the same. But you every day have to spend ten, twenty minutes in front of the mirror, and of course, someday you may bleed. Yeah, <laughs> no, not uncommon. <laughs> but I, okay, so just just to get back, I wasn't, I didn't mean to go back to pick on you about the beard thing. What I what I meant to say is, you are not the typical guru in every way because you're really into golf, for example. I've seen in videos of you driving around on a motorcycle and dirt bikes, and you do all sorts of... Um, I live on this planet. Yeah, you live on this planet in a, in a full not, way. I did not drop from the heavens. I grew out of this planet, so I'm, I belong to this planet. Some it, people like to pretend like they dropped from elsewhere. That's their problem. And you also, you you are a teacher of people who are very much of this world. And for for example, in the business community, as as I understand it, you taught at, uh, you've spoken at Google, at Harvard Business School, as we discussed earlier, you're going to go speak to some people from General Electric. How did that come about and what is your message to people in the business world? See, my effort, uh, especially in the last 20 years, I've been engaged with the business world in a big way in India and internationally. I've been at the Economic Forum and various other major economic summits in the world. The effort has been for me to move people, because today businesses have grown. Many businesses are as large as a nation by themselves, you know. They're they're big enough to be a nation. The important thing for me is to move them from their individual ambition to a larger vision of creating well-being. I'm not talking about charity. I'm talking about structuring your business itself, the fundamental consciousness with which you operate. This has to change. At one point at the economic forum, they asked me, looking at the nature of my work, Sadhguru, what is it that we can do for you that will change this world? I told them, see, I will name 25 people. Give them to me for five days. You will see in two to three years' time a significant change on this planet. They asked me who these 25 people are. I said, I named 25 heads of major nations on the planet. Give them to me for five days. Because for the first time, for the very first time in the history of humanity, we have the necessary resource, necessary capability, and necessary technology to address every human problem on the planet. Only thing that's missing is an inclusive consciousness that you have not experienced the unity of life. Suppose you had experienced everything as myself then we would have solved everything. For example, in 2012, they tell me in that year, some statistics show that we produced enough food on this planet for 18.6 billion people. But we had only some 6.5 billion people on that day. But still half the people go hungry. Obviously somewhere, what is missing is human consciousness, not resource, not capability, not technology. Human beings are missing. I would love to be a fly on the wall during a four-day retreat with you and the leaders of the 25 largest nations. That would be amazing. (laughs) If that happens, please invite me. Um, The one company that I know is never going to invite you to speak is Gillette. 
<laughs> You're never going there. Any other company, <laughs> fine. Um, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Before I let you go, though, is there anything that I missed, any point that you'd like to make that I didn't give you a chance to make? So today uh, I'm here in the United States. I've been traveling around the world for many years, but now I'm looking at it this way, that I'm trying to curtail my activity in the rest of the world except in India and to spend significant amount of time in United States because United States has attained to a leadership position in the world, not just militarily or politically like that. See, for example, if you wear blue trousers, half the world is wearing blue trousers without knowing why. If you tear up your pants, they are also tearing up their pants. Mm. If you put carbon dioxide in a bottle and drink it, they are also drinking it. When the world is looking up to you like this, I think it's a tremendous privilege. And this must be conducted with responsibility. Today, in people's images, it may not be exactly true, but in the youth of the rest of the world, if you say America, they think free-flowing alcohol. If you say America, they think drugs everywhere. If you say America, some wacky life that I can live. If you say America, people think war. It's time that we create this image for America. America means healthful living. America means joyful living. America means responsible living. America means a great way of life for everybody. If we set this up, the world is looking up to you. See, now you have a 20-month-old child. I'm sure the moment the child came in, at least a few things you try to rejig because he's looking up to you. A little child is looking up to you. You can't do wacky things. You have to straighten up. Now the entire world is looking up to you. America, it's time. You do the right thing so that the entire world will do. I think if we get America to meditate, we can get the entire world to meditate very easily. That's why I'm here. I'm, I'm uh, on your team. I, I fully support that mission. I'm trying to do the same thing. Let's make it happen. <laughs> Sadhguru, thank you very much. Thank you. Really appreciate thank it. You, Great to meet you. <laughs> thank you very much. You may remember that, that it was mentioned that um, Sadhguru's editor is now my editor for the, the books I'm going to be working on going forward. Uh, her name is Julie Grau. She's great. And after we conducted that interview with Sadhguru, Julie pointed out that the reason why he may have been a little bit elliptical uh, about the meditation he practices is that actually in his way of teaching, it really does need to be taught in person. So it wasn't, she pointed out, it wasn't that he was trying to avoid the question per se. It's just that it's a practice that really does need apparently to be taught in person. So just adding that in there for your information. Uh, I want to thank you for listening. I also want to thank the people who make this podcast possible internally here at ABC News. Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, Andrew Kalb, Steve Jones, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. If you want to suggest topics we should cover or guests we should bring on the show, the best way to do that is hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Uh, I love hearing from you, and I really do listen to the suggestions, so please keep them coming. And if you want to learn a little bit more about how to meditate, you can check out the 10% Happier app. We'll be back, as we are, every Wednesday with a brand new episode. Until then, take it easy. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. 
Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.